Thank you. And um, I love having that detail in there. My father actually worked for Texas Instruments when I was young. And uh, so technology has been part of my life for a long time. Um, my mother told me a story growing up uh, about how when she was pregnant with me, she dreamed one night that uh, she looked at her belly and it was made of glass. And inside was Yoda from Star Wars. Uh, so it's uncanny. Like, I didn't know dreams could be so prescient, you know because uh, the resemblance is uncanny. Um, anyway, thank you for having me here today. Um, I, I bring up the story of, of my, uh, my gestation, if you will, because I, uh, I too, am, uh, am expecting, uh, my wife and I are expecting our first child in January. It's a boy. Um, and, you know, like all good adventures in life, this is both wonderful and terrifying. Um, but, you know, it's got me thinking about, you know, the sort of world I'm bringing this new person into. Uh, and I'm so fortunate to live in the 70 or so year period um, uh, of the millions of years of humanity where you can actually see inside the womb. And, and it's, you know, these, this is just one of these examples where, you know, technology is just fundamentally changing uh, the way that we go about doing these very basic, you know, human activities that, that people have always done. I have to say, it feels a little like I'm spying on him, but it's ultimately for his benefit, so I hope he won't mind. Um, but, you know, as I'm thinking about what sort of world am I bringing this person into, what are the challenges that he's going to face in the next, you know, 80, 90 years, whatever the life expectancy rate will be, and you know, the the dominant kind of response to this is to say, you know, in, in the information age, we call our time the information age. The dominant challenge is managing information. It's making sure that you can control what happens to your data. You know that you can, you know, regulate data. Uh, you know, data information is kind of the core challenge. And I think that that's true, but I think that as a, as a society, we've kind of missed an observation, broadly speaking, that Herbert Simon made back in the 1970s. Uh, he noted that when information becomes abundant, attention becomes the scarce resource. And I really think that this is one of these, not, it's more than a paradigm shift, it's a shift in in how we see the core challenges of our life that I think we really haven't come to terms with, and I think it has profound implications for societal systems, for news, for advertising, for law, for ethics. Um, and I think that this is one of the greatest challenges of today, let alone the future, but it will only get more and more challenging in the future. A broad way of, of kind of describing the challenge of attention that we have today before us uh, is that we have this enterprise called advertising. If the technology will cooperate. <laughs> there we go. So we've had this enterprise called advertising. And, you know, as the scarce resource today, attention is the object of competition among most of our technologies. And you can say, well, it always has been the object of, our, of competition to some degree in advertising. And this is true. Um, but what's happened in the last 20, 30 years is this, the, the enterprise of advertising has come into conversation with improvements, enhancements in our understanding of psychology, behavioral economics, ways of shaping people's environments in order to shape their thinking and their behavior. Uh, and they've gotten really, really good at understanding this. At the same time, this enormous new global infrastructure of measurement, optimization, message delivery on the internet has emerged. And I think the unison of these three trends has created a lot of opportunities, but I actually think a great moral crisis 
and perhaps the greatest moral crisis of our time, and the, the, uh, the crisis that the, the fixing of which I think posterity will judge us most. Add to this the fact that this, the power of persuasion that has come from this industry is, uh, is centralized in the hands of a few people in a few offices, in a few companies, uh, largely in one state, in one country. Uh, you know, the ability to shape over two billion people's attentional habits day to day is a type of power that, you know, Alexander the Great could never even have, have imagined. Um, it's unprecedented in human history. It's as, as if everyone in the world were living in the same, you know, like one of three templatized house designs, right? Um, so the reason this is so important is because in the past, technology was a tool for us, but now it's, it's our environment. It's the water we swim in, it's the air we breathe. And you can't get away from it. This is the environment we live in, and it's often called the... Sorry. So it, it's often described in terms of being the attention economy, right? So all of the technologies we use, the main thing they're competing for is our attention. And they're getting really, really good at this. And Technology in the digital age has enveloped human life, so it's not localized to a particular place, a particular time. The nature of digital technology is to dissolve boundaries, and uh, that's what it's been doing uh, at a very rapid pace. And then and this entire persuasion industry has uh, kind of grabbed onto this, this situation and, um, and used it to, uh, to direct our behavior and thinking toward their goals and not ours. Uh, most of the time, because if you think about the goals that you have for your life, like uh, today, this month, this year, they're probably things like, I want to spend more time with family, or I want to learn how to play the piano, or I want to, uh, uh, <laughs> some latency here, take that trip I've been thinking about. Uh, so these are real human goals, right? But if you think about the goals that the technologies we use every day have, that we trust our lives to, the navigation systems, the GPSs for our lives, they tend to be things like spend more time on a site or with an ad, uh, or uh, you know, do more clicks, taps, scrolls, etc., or look at a page more, look at a site more, impressions. You know, but nobody I know has these kind of engagement metrics as their own life goals. That would be really weird if someone did. I never met anybody who does. Um, if, I, if there is, I'd love to, to meet them. Uh, you know, nobody I know has the goal of waking up in the morning and, and, and saying, how much time can I possibly spend on Facebook today? Or how much time can I possibly spend on Twitter? But I, I think that there's a, this disjunction, this gap, is a really big problem. Because if the point of technology is for helping us do the things we want to do better, then the current situation is, it seems to be failing miserably at that. It's the complete opposite of what technology's mission ought to be. And you know, I think that this is one of the biggest problems we have before us. So I think the inconvenient truth of the attention economy is that it is not on our side. Its goals are not our goals, right? Its values are not our values, yet it's what is shaping our lives more and more and in increasingly invisible ways, as, we were, as was being talked about earlier. The technology is moving into the background, whereas it's been in the foreground in the past. Occasionally, we get little 
glimpses of the fact that, you know, people who work in this industry, you know, many good people, many of whom are my friends, uh, they're aware of this. So the CEO of Netflix, Reed Hastings, a little while back said, in addition to their uh, to Snapchat and YouTube, uh, one of their competitors was sleep. Uh, so, you know, there's a very real sense in which the goals of the attention economy are directly contrary to the goals that people actually have that contribute to their well-being, to their benefit. I think that what we're facing is something that there's been a, a few people at the periphery of society over the last century warning us about, about not just the risk to freedom that coercion faces, poses, uh, but the risk of persuasion, of seduction, manipulation. One of those was Aldous Huxley, who, uh, of course, in Brave New World, uh, described many of these issues. But in Brave New World Revisited, he said that the defenders of freedom in his time had failed to take into account man's almost infinite appetite for distractions. And I'm convinced that in the age of digital technology, we've made exactly the same mistake. We worry about issues of management of information more than management of attention. Uh, we worry about coercive power rather than the seductive power that, uh, that, that shapes us and controls us, not by what we fear, but based on what we love, as Neil Postman put it in the 1980s. So what would it look like to take into account man's almost infinite appetite for distractions? How could we gain a broader view of what the problems are, the externalities of the attention economy, if you will? Well, I think it would involve starting to assert and defend something we might think of as a freedom of attention. Now, freedom of attention is not a, a common term uh, because, you know, in the past, the major threats have been to freedom of speech, freedom of expression. Uh, many of these concerns are enshrined in our, our laws. But I think we can find good precedent on the classic thinkers on liberty and freedom. Uh, to come up with this freedom of attention that I think is crucially needed uh, to complement freedom of expression. And one of those is John Stuart Mill, who, in On Liberty, wrote that the appropriate region of human liberty comprises first the inward domain of consciousness, liberty of thought and feeling. So the first freedom is the freedom of mind. If you don't have that freedom, then the freedom of speech is not worth a whole lot. But then he goes on and says the principle requires liberty of tastes and pursuits of framing the plan of our life to suit our own character. So attention here is not just the narrowly psychologized view of attention that psychologists, neuroscientists might talk about, but it's a, a more broadly about how we navigate our lives in the direction we want them to go. And this, to me, seems exactly what technology exists to amplify. Uh, he adds that this liberty rests in part on the same reasons and is inseparable from them. Uh, that underlie the liberty of expressing and publishing opinions. So freedom of attention is not a threat to freedom of speech, it's a prerequisite to freedom of speech. So what would it look like to create a view of attention beyond this narrow, psychologized view of attention, the, the spotlight of attention, as cognitive scientists sometimes call it, the way I, I direct my perception within the task domain? So for instance, when I, you know, the spotlight of my attention is threatened, say I'm trying to read a book, and then I, uh, I, I see my phone buzz because Trump has tweeted his you know, daily outrage. Uh, this, this is kind of you know, a redirection of my spotlight, and I go back to reading my book. And this is how we've tended to think of distraction, right? As these minor annoyances that just are little you know, pings on our attention and we go back to what we're doing. But I think it goes much, much deeper than that because um, you know, 
this has become our mental environment, this environment of constant pings on our attention, constant distractions. And this is a, a screen grab from a, a site uh, that, that Google has called Think with Google, which is aimed at advertisers. But it's interesting to me because of the phrasing. It says, smartphones allow us to act on any impulse at any time. And then the second sentence is, we take immediate action whenever we want to learn, find, do, or buy something. But we also take immediate action and impulsive action when we don't want to do something and when we regret having done that thing later. Uh, and you know, in this environment where our, our attention is becoming kind of uh, defined by, uh, by these, just these constant pings, and, and this is what led me to start researching this, this subject when I was working at Google, is, is because there was more technology in my life, and technology ought to be a good thing, but I felt like it was harder to do the things I wanted to do, because these little constant dings added up, and they became habits, they became the shape, the character of my life. And I felt like it was getting kind of weird, uh, to be honest. Um, so distraction, I realized, doesn't just, it's not limited to doing what we want to do, to interfering with that. It also interferes with our ability to be who we want to be. So questions of habits, of identity, of values, our longer-term goals, uh, what psychologists sometimes call being goals. So when it interferes with our ability to be who we want to be, uh, there are a lot of ways it can do this, but one mechanism we see used a lot is, uh, is this mechanism called intermittent variable rewards, which uh, is used in a lot of endless news feeds uh, and many other types of products where uh, if you randomize the rewards you give to somebody for doing a certain behavior, they'll do that behavior more. I think it was originally discovered by uh, when they would give pigeons food and they randomized the food delivery, they would hit the button more. And so this is what's happening. It's like playing a slot machine of information when we sort of scroll down to refresh. It's also used in a lot of uh, freemium games, of course. Uh, and I think there's a whole other looming ethical question about a lot of these uh, types of, of, of products, which exist solely uh, to, to continue their, their usage. And I love this one guy's response on the Twitter uh, ad for this. Uh, so the point here is that is the systems that we use, the media we use, have values of their own. And when we use them, we internalize those values, and they become our world. And Marshall McLuhan pointed this out in the 60s um, very well. You know, all the new media are art, for, art forms that can impose their own assumptions on our lives. Um, they are not just ways of relating us to some other real world, to the old world that used to exist. They become our world. They are our world. They reshape our world at their will. This is a more verbose way, of course, of saying the medium is the message. So when its values become our values, what happens is we start to value things like fame, which research has shown is now the value that children's television shows hold up as the value most worth pursuing in life, as opposed to pro-social, community-oriented values like they were um, before, you know, before maybe like 15 or, or, or years ago. We also see an increase in pettiness where you value a lower level goal as though it were a higher level goal. And this happens at the individual level, but even at organizational levels, national levels, as seen by this uh, equally brazen quote uh, as the Netflix one. The CBS chairman and CEO last February said, Donald Trump's candidacy may not be good for America, but it's damn good for CBS. And so it's, you know, herein lies you know, the perfect expression of the pettiness of the attention economy. So, Distraction doesn't just include frustrations of our being able to do what we want to do, but also to be who we want to be. 
But there's one deeper level where it's not about pursuing the goals and values that we have, but being able to come up with them in the first place, being able to reflect, being able to critically examine our lives, to be able to want what we want to want, in other words. And again, there are many ways that this happens, uh, many ways that the attention economy can, can produce this effect. Um, but one I think we see all the time is in the way in which it produces outrage. It invites this in so many ways. It seems like every week we have one new outrage cascade where the entire internet just comes down on someone. It's this impulse to judge and punish. Uh, and it's, it happens so much because it, outrage fulfills many psychological needs at once. It gives us a sense of moral clarity, of social solidarity with others, uh, of a feeling that we have an identity, uh, a group. And this was a useful thing when we lived in small hunting, gathering tribes, uh, you know, thousands of years ago. But it, at scale, at the global scale, like, it's completely counterproductive. Just to take one example, uh, a few years ago, a couple years ago, this lion was killed in Zimbabwe by a dentist from Minnesota. It was a stupid thing to have done. It was probably illegal, I'm not, I'm not sure. But what happened was that the entire internet came down on him. There was this public shaming fest, you know, not, not intended to, you know, kill him, burn him at the stake as they might have in the past, but to kill him reputationally, symbolically, destroy his career. People showed up at his place of work, put, posting signs saying, rot in hell. You know, when children do this sort of thing, we call it cyberbullying, but then when adults do it, we kind of give it a pass. We call it, you know, karma or sweet, sweet revenge or something. But, you know, this is precisely the dynamic, this outrage, this mob rule that Socrates viewed as the route democracies take from becoming democracies to becoming tyrannies again. And so I think that the way in which the attention economy is promoting and advancing these very harmful societal dynamics is, uh, I think it ought to be much, much more central on our societal radar than it is. This underlies clickbait, this underlies fake news. It's the root cause of all of these things. So distraction, to kind of sum up, is then not just about doing what we want to do in the moment, in the task domain. It's also about values, identity, being who we want to be, and then at the deepest level, wanting what we want to want. And this is the way that Harry Frankfurt, the philosopher at Princeton, thinks about the human will. And ultimately, in the question of attention, this is what's at stake. It's the, it's the human will. It, there's a sense in which the attention economy can be read as kind of a distributed denial of service attack on the human will. And I think that this is, again, one of the most important moral and political issues of our time, because you know, his article 21, I believe, of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights states that the will of, of the people is the basis of the authority of government. To the extent that our will is being deprived, undermined, eroded, our political authority is, our moral authority even, in some ways. So I think we could characterize these as three different types of distraction. Uh, and these have been helpful to, for me in piecing through these. There's obviously a lot of ways this could be carved up. But I think we could say that functional distraction is stuff that interferes with doing what we want to do. So this would be misalignment with tasks and goals. Uh, when the, the system isn't aware of our intentions. But then we could talk about existential distraction, which interferes with our being goals, being who we want to be. So this would be where the technology and its effects are misaligned with our values, our identity. Um, they, you know, there's a lot of regrettedness in our behavior. 
uh, our tasks are fragmented or allocated in a way that we don't want. And then the deepest level, the wanting what we want to want type of distraction, we could characterize as epistemic distraction, which broadly would be frustrations of our underlying capabilities. So like reason, reflection, willpower, metacognition, these things that in a lot of ways we identify as our uniquely human capacities. So there's a, really, a real sense in which, you know, when the attention economy, any design is undermining these deepest things, they're in a sense dehumanizing us. Um, and again, all this seems to me completely contrary to the goals of what technology exists for in the first place. Um, as Aristotle wrote back in the politics, it is disgraceful to be unable to use our good things. And I think this is a disgraceful situation. It's no one's fault, by the way. It's, it, there's no one person who has their hand on the lever and said, I want it to be this way. So this isn't about blaming people, not blaming companies, not blaming designers, uh, not blaming users. Um, but it's not a tolerable situation in my view. We can't go on like this, it is not sustainable. So what do we do? So that's a big question that I don't have time today to go into the full, uh, the full spiel about, but um, you know, there are a few kind of initial responses that are typically given when these kind of arguments are made. One is that, well, if you don't like the technology, don't use it. You know, you, nobody's forcing you to use these things. You don't have to, uh, you know, just go about your day without using it. And I think this, is, this misses the point that technology is not a tool, it's our environment, it's our entire infosphere, uh, as the philosopher Luciano Floridi describes it. Besides, I don't think that users should have to accept a situation where technology is adversarial in, in the relationship with them. Well, why shouldn't we expect technology to be on our side? Uh, why is that not just inherently the goal? Another response that's sometimes given is, um, well, you know, what you need to do is just adapt, because every, you know, every generation has said that the new media are problematic and you just need to work harder. You, know, you need to uh, get more willpower, even though the whole problem is that thousands of PhDs, designers, scientists, statisticians go to work every day to undermine our willpower. You just need to have more willpower. This is, that doesn't seem to me to cohere in any way as an argument. And besides, you know, and this was back in 1899, the head of the Canadian Telegraph System said, there's no competition against instantaneousness. You know, our impulses will outrun our intentions nine times out of 10. But again, like I said, we can't blame the designers at these companies either. That's not what this is about, because you know, nobody goes into design because they want to make people's life worse or undermine people's will. People go into design because they want to help people, want to do good things. Um, and so, you know, when I talk to designers, I get this question a lot of, you know, when it comes to attention and persuasion, where is the line? Where does it stop being unethical and start being ethical? And, you know, it's, it's, it's not the right question because, you know, if somebody who was selling cigarettes came to you and said, where is the line? You say, well, the problem is the system that has this as a thing in the first place, right? We shouldn't have to ask the question. The question is the line in a lot of ways. So what's... This isn't so much an ethical question as it is what Luciano Ferridi, the philosopher at Oxford that I work with, uh, calls infraethics. It's the ethics of the infrastructure, of the, the system that enables all of this. And I think what, in a broad sense, needs to happen here is we need to reorient design and industry into its proper relation with philosophy, values, ethics. The Chilean economist Manfred Max Neef has uh, a structure which, you know, there are many ways of, of carving this up too, but 
he, he says, you know, you can kind of look at fields of inquiry as asking four different questions. At the one level, you have what exists in the world. So things like mathematics, physics, uh, you know, uh, sociology, economics. But then one level above that asks what we can do. So this is the domain of architecture, engineering, commerce, etc. But above that, there's the question of what do we want to do? And this is where design, law, politics come into play. But the thing that all of these ought to serve at the end of the day is the question of why, the question of what we are compelled to do, what we must do. And this is a domain of values, ethics, philosophy. To me, this is sort of implicit in the spirit of user-centered design. And one way to read what I'm talking about here is as a kind of up-leveling of user-centered design from the task domain to the, the life domain. Um, and so, there, again, this is a very big <laughs> challenge for anyone to take on. Uh, and so I think that the, the, the innovations, the solutions that are necessary here encompass such a wide range of activities across the full stack of human society. Uh, and uh, and I, so I don't have time to go into all these today, but what I want to do is talk about the area where I think that we could have the biggest leverage, uh, one of the greatest leverage points, which is our language and concepts we use to talk about attention and persuasion. So one thing that I think is fascinating is the way in which the language of persuasion is so fragmented. So we have all sorts of ways of describing persuasive activities between domains, but also even within domains. But I think it would be really useful if we had a more systematized way of talking about persuasion that relates to the ethical priorities in play. So for instance, on this chart here, uh, if, along the x-axis, you have uh, the degree to which the technology is aligned with your goals. Then on the y-axis, you have the degree to which it constrains your actions or your, your behavior, your thoughts. You could start to talk about persuasion in a more structured way. So you could say that a technology that is uh, high in goal alignment but low in the degree to which it constrains you is a directive technology. Or you could say that uh, one that is high in its degree of constraint but low in its goal alignment is a seductive technology. So I think this would be a starting point for, for a more uh, a conversation uh, that has more clarity, uh, more applicability when it comes to persuasion. The other thing I think we need to do is really rethink what we want advertising to do for us in an information-abundant environment. The justification for advertising historically has been that it gives us more information that allows us to make better purchasing decisions. And that is what it did, and it still does in some ways. So what it, one way I think that, that we could define advertising, if we look at it historically, because there's never been actually a really good definition offered. And even today, I, I haven't really talked to anybody who can give a really straight definition. But this is my best, uh, my best guess. And if you have any suggestions, I'd be happy to discuss. But I think you could talk about advertising historically as being a proactive appeal for a resource of value that's made in a way that overrides the normal design goals, design logic for information delivery in a medium. So you have the front page of the New York Times, you have a very clearly bounded box that says this is an ad. So it's kind of a, an exception to the rule in other ways. And this is what you know, web ads initially, so this is the very first web ad on Wired's homepage back in 1994. If you ever clicked your mouse right here, you will. I don't know if that was meant as a prediction or a command, but uh, uh, in either case, uh, it was, they, they were proved right. Um, one other way to describe this shift in an information-abundant environment that advertising has undergone is 
you know, in the past, advertising was often talked about in terms of underwriting. So there were the existing design goals, existing social good of a program, a radio program, TV program, where the ads were a temporary suspension of the design logic of that. But I think what's happened now, and especially with the rise of web analytic systems, which have entrenched these engagement metrics as the highest level goals uh, for the medium as a whole, they move from a situation of underwriting to overwriting. So where they're not the exception to the rule anymore, advertising has become the normal design logic for the medium. They become the rule. And so I think that this re really needs a, a, a proper societal conversation because I think the implications if we don't revisit this are, are immense. Um, but I think one implication of, uh, uh, it, you know, to the extent that, that the logic of advertising is now the logic of our digital environment, of the attention economy, a lot of what we kind of normally talk about uh, as digital advertising doesn't, you know, doesn't really exist. It's not an exception to the rule anymore. It is the rule. And so I think that there's a huge definitional question here that, has to, that probably has enormous legal and ethical implications. Because, you know, like I said, this is our environment. And localized, the same way that localized pollution eventually collectivized, reached a tipping point, and produced the situation of climate change that we now have, I think something like this is happening with our inner environment. I think localized situations of distraction, in, in the broad way that I, I mentioned earlier, have collectivized and are reaching a tipping point of, uh, that you know, I think may be really hard to come back from if we go too far. Thomas Paine in Common Sense said, a long habit of not thinking a thing wrong gives it a superficial appearance of being right. And I think something like this may be happening here. One metaphor uh, that I think could be useful to kind of understand this is, so in the 1960s, there was a button some people in San Francisco started wearing they said, why haven't we seen a photograph of the whole Earth yet? And the reason they wanted a photograph of the whole Earth is because they knew that if you turn the Earth into the foreground, you take it from background to foreground, you turn it into an informational object, then you can conceptualize it. And they were right. It, we would have no environmental movement if it were not for satellites, for photos of the Earth. When we th you think of the world, this is usually what comes to mind. And it gives us a sense of collective identity. Um, and so it enabled a whole shift in consciousness that, that, uh, that they intended by turning the world into this informational object in the foreground. And I think something like this is in, is in the process of happening with this information attention flip that I talked about at the beginning. Something like this is happening with human life where we see slices of ourselves in technology and it sees a slice of us, usually the, sli usually the slice that is most relevant to its immediate goals uh, or interests. But I think what we need to do is get a sense of, you know, see a picture, a photograph of our whole lives in a way with technology and actually have technology be able to see that and, uh, and, and, and respond to it. Because, you know, at the end of the day, our attention is our most precious resource. And all of the other problems that are facing our world right now, climate change, fighting extremism, et cetera, you know, before we can solve any of those things, we first have to be able to give attention to the things that matter. And I think this is exactly what you know, the attention economy is, is in the process of undermining. And I, I believe in the potential of technology. Uh, and uh, you know, like I spent my whole life uh, sort of trying to improve technology in, in, in many ways, but 
I, I worry about the system we have right now, um, but I'm hopeful that uh, you know, enough people who are concerned and thinking about these issues can start to press the conversation in society, can start to raise these questions in your organizations, uh, in communities, at local and national levels, that we need to start asserting and defending our freedom of attention. Uh, and so to the extent that that's a, a, a project of interest to you, uh, I would love to collaborate with you, uh, and I wish you the very best in that task. So thank you for having me today, and thanks very much for your attention. Thank you, Jane. Fantastic. James, uh, I'm afraid we don't have, we don't have time for uh, real questions, but what, I, what I'd like to ask you quickly is for those of us that uh, would love to, to, to continue this conversation, wh where's the best way to, to, to learn more, and what's the, thing, the one thing we can do to demand, more of our, demand our attention back? Sure. And if you said it already, I'm sorry, I wasn't paying attention. Oh, sure. <laughs> um, uh, so uh, one project I'm affiliated with, affiliated with is the Time Well Spent campaign, so that would be a great place to go. Uh, online and learn more and get involved. There's a, a mailing list you can sign up for. Um, more locally here, um, I'll be around, so feel free to come up to me and talk to me, and I'd love to chat with you and get your perspectives on all this. Fantastic. Thank you much, James Williams. Thank you.